Welcome to the Compliance 911 Show, a no-nonsense podcast discussing hot topics for today's busy compliance professional. It's everything you wanted to know about regulatory compliance, but we're afraid to ask. And now, here are your hosts, Dean Stockford of M&M Consulting and Len Suzio of Geodata Vision. So, Len, I know we've covered a lot of topics uh, related to CRA and the various provisions uh, within CRA. And uh, my expectation is we'll probably, uh, because there is so much with CRA, that we're probably going to uh, uh, stay on that topic. But uh, can you give me some some insight as to what today's topic is going to be? Well, what I plan on talking about today might seem kind of mundane to most people, uh, but it is a topic that is caused great confusion among bankers. So I think it's timely. In fact, we were recently asked questions by a bank about how to transition from an ISB to a large bank and what the implications are. They were confused about when this happens and what are the consequences. So I thought it would be a good idea to review the transition rules when a bank transitions from being a small bank to being an intermediate small bank. And then when an intermediate small bank itself transitions to a large bank and then to explore what all this means. And believe me, the implications are very big. So it pays to be sure of when things happen and what follows. So how confusing can it be? I, I mean, there, there are only three bank sizes. Well, Dean, you would think it would be pretty simple and straightforward, but when it comes to regulatory compliance, is anything ever simple? <laughs> yeah, well, that's an excellent point. I have to say you've, you're right on point with the respect to that, uh, to, to that comment. Um, please educate our audience about simple but complex issue that's transitioning from one bank size to another for CRA purposes. Well, let's begin by clarifying and breaking the issue down into its components. First, believe it or not, the regulars would tell you there are only two bank size categories, not three. By that, they mean there are small banks and large banks. But what about the intermediate small banks, you might say? And the answer is that ISBs are a subtype of the small bank category, which is why they are called intermediate small banks and not intermediate size banks. In fact, by the way, the OCC had a big debate about that last year when they were uh, redoing the CRA regulation. They were going to eliminate this whole idea of intermediate small banks and call them intermediate banks. Uh, the regulators consider the distinction critical because small banks are not required to report under CRA, although every bank is required to perform under CRA. Hence, they try to they draw the line between small banks including intermediate small banks and large banks. Now, even though intermediate small banks are a type of small bank, they have dramatically increased CRA responsibilities under the regulations. ISBs have a much heavier CRA burden than ordinary small banks, I'll call them, especially when it comes to a peculiar activity called, quote, community development, end quote. Whereas an ordinary small bank has no community development responsibilities under the regulation, intermediate small banks have a heavy burden when it comes to community development. In fact, community development is absolutely critical 
for an intermediate small bank to pass their CRA exam. In order to earn a satisfactory CRA performance rating, an ISB must demonstrate a satisfactory level of community development activity. But an ordinary small bank has not a single community development responsibility whatsoever. So when banks transition from being an intra, uh, from being an ordinary small bank to an intermediate small bank, it's often shocking and they're frequently unprepared for the dramatic differences. So an ordinary small bank that is on the verge of becoming an intermediate small bank had better be aware of those dramatic implications for CRA performance because I'll tell you, we've seen that paradigm and it is a it is quite a jump. Yeah, Dean, it's it's and that's an understatement to be honest with you because community development activities are an entirely new ball game. And to make matters worse, how community development is defined in the regulation is confusing and the standards often vague. And even more shocking is that a bank that has just become an intermediate small bank will be expected to have engaged in community development responsibilities before they became an ISB, retroactive to the previous exam. So even though they were a ordinary small bank during that time period, once they become an ISB, they will be expected to have already begun engaging in community development activities. What? Wait a minute now. A bank that becomes an ISB on, let's just say, January 1st and undergoes a CRA exam the next day will be expected to have engaged in community development activity before it becomes mandatory as an ISB? Did I miss something or did I hear you right? (laughs) You sure heard that right, Dean. And this, quote, retroactive requirement was repeated as recently as at the interagency CRA conference in March of this year, 2022. So the moral of the story is that if you're getting close to the ISB size threshold, you had better engage in community development activities at least a year or two in advance of being saddled with the official mandatory community development responsibilities. Yeah, and I've always knew that it was quite a transition going from, say, an ISB up to a larger uh, bank standards. But let's let's make sure our audience understands what triggers a bank becoming an intermediate small bank. When does that happen and what triggers it? Yes. Now, you have to listen carefully because this can be confusing. What else is new in regulations? (laughs) Uh, As you and I are discussing this, we're in the first half of 2022. So the size standards that dictate when a bank becomes an intermediate small bank are the size standards that were published by the FDIC and the FRB in December of 2021, effective January 1st, 2022. The December memo states that a bank becomes an intermediate small bank if its assets on December 31st, 2020 and December 31st, 2021 were at least $346 million dollars but less than $1.384 billion. Now, what confuses people is that the size standard changes every year. So it's possible, ironically, to be above the size standard in one year and above the second standard in the second year, but not qualify as an intermediate small bank. How is that possible? Well, it can happen when a bank's assets in the first year exceed the standard in the first year, but are below the standard announced in the second year. The rule is that the latest standard, which is effective on January 1st, applies to the asset size of a bank in both of the two previous calendar years. 
So really, theoretically, it's possible that a bank could be above the standard at the end of December 2020 and the standard at the end of December 2021, but still not be an ISB because they fell in between the two standards in the first year. And that's what really gets banks confused and catches them in the trap of not recognizing that they are or are not an intermediate small bank. And adding further to the confusion, by the way, is that the OCC, the Comptroller of the Currency, has a different asset size categories with an intermediate small bank size standard starting at $332 million in both the prior two years, 2020 and 2021, and less than $1.322 billion. Now, I expect that during uh, the, the 2022, the agencies will issue a new CRA rule that will put all three regulators on the same page with respect to asset size categories. But for 2022, OCC regulated banks have slightly different size categories. So there's confusion everywhere. Yeah, thanks for making that distinction because I certainly was gonna ask that when you start talking about the different agencies and the different thresholds that are out there. Okay, so we've been talking about the small bank uh, transitioning. Uh, from an ordinary small bank to an intermediate small bank. And as I told you before in my previous comment, I know that there's quite a transition from an ISB uh, moving to a large bank. Um, but does it have kind of the same standards? Must it take effect immediately too uh, in the large bank CRA standards applied immediately right away? Or how does that work? Hey, Dean, we're talking about bureaucratic regulations. <laughs> Do you really think that they are applied consistently? Come yeah. on. <laughs> <laughs> I won't answer that. <laughs> Unlike when an ordinary small bank transitions to an ISB, when a ISB becomes a large bank, it is not subject to large bank examination standards until the year following the bank's first reporting year, which would be the year it qualifies as a large bank. Effectively, this delays the impact on examination standards for a year, unlike the ISB situation, whereby those examination standards are put into effect immediately the day the bank qualifies as an ISB. So you might say, well, what's the rationale for this inconsistent treatment for examination purposes between new intermediate small banks and new large banks? Well, the reason advanced by the regulators is that a large bank must report its CRA responsibilities and the first time that activity is mandatory to be collected and reported is the very first year a bank qualifies as a large bank for CRA purposes. Therefore, the data won't be available until after the first year in which a bank becomes a large bank. It's only in the year the data is first reported that a new large bank is subject to the large bank performance standards. Ironically, the FFIEC is so late re releasing annual aggregate and disclosure data that a, lar a new large bank may be subject to the large bank exam standards before their data is available to the public, e even though this is contrary to the intent of delaying the implementation of the large bank examination standards by a year. But as long as the FFIEC continues to release the annual aggregate and disclosure data the week before Christmas of the following year, the evaluation of every bank's CRA performance will be abnormally delayed. This is puzzling because the CFPB releases the annual HMDA data, the annual HMDA aggregate and disclosure data, within a month of the March 1st filing date. Why the FFIC and the, and the, uh, the, the Fed can't 
do something similar, at least at least have the data, the annual CRA data released in midsummer is beyond me. There's never been an explanation. Uh, the, the long delay preceded the advent of COVID. So COVID can't be blamed for it, although it probably didn't help. But there's just this unacceptably long delays in the release of the CRA data. Yeah, that's all great information. Perhaps you can just help me understand something, because I've always been under the the understanding that uh, in some cases, it's better for a bank that is right now considered an ISB to actually take advantage or report as a large bank. Um, And maybe you can help kind of uh, assist me in understanding why that is. Is my understanding accurate? that perhaps it is better for somebody to be a large bank, even if they are or, or fall within the threshold as an ISB? Yes, that's a topic that I did uh, cover in a, in a previous podcast, but it's a good, it's such an important point. It's worth bringing up again and explaining. The, the distinction is critical between a large bank and an ISB because the examination standards are so different. And the big difference is this emphasis of community development activity for intermediate small banks. Now, when an intermediate small bank is examined for CRA performance, it must pass two tests. One is the lending test, and the other is the community development activities test. And if the bank doesn't pass both parts, both tests, it will fail the entire exam. It'll get a need to improve on its composite performance rating. However, a large bank undergoing CRA performance evaluation using the large bank standards uh, has 24 points that it can earn towards its CRA rating. And all the bank has to do under the large bank examination standards is acquire or achieve 11 of the 24 points that are required. And the way it breaks out is 12 points are under the lending test, six points under the community development investment test, and six points under the community development services test. So you can see if all a bank needs to do is accumulate 11 points, <clears throat> and it can accumulate as much as 12 points on the lending test, let's just say it gets eight points out of possible 12 on the lending test. That means it has to get only a three points out of a potential 12 points on the community development investing or community development servicing side. So basically a bank, a large bank, can do a pretty poor job of community development activity and still get a composite performance rating satisfactory, but a, an intermediate small bank would not. And the point that you bring up is not only that there's that critical distinction, Dean, but that a bank that's an intermediate small bank could earn itself the option to be evaluated under the large bank standards if it voluntarily reports its annual CRA data. If it does that, it gets an elective that allows it to choose just before its CRA exam will commence uh, whether it wants to be examined under the intermediate small bank standards or under the large bank standards. And that is something that gives the the bank the opportunity to figure out, well, how strong is our community development activity? Do we feel confident that it's good? And if it is, then they're going to say, well, okay, maybe then we'll be examined as an ISB. But if a bank is dubious or is concerned about the adequacy of its community development activity, then it might choose to elect to be examined under the large bank standards, which uh, basically downplay community development activity. But again, for an ISB to have that privilege, that elective, it has to voluntarily file its annual data. Uh, and that, I'm very happy you brought that up, Dean, because that's a critical point. 
Yeah, well, and I certainly appreciate you addressing that. And I certainly, uh, you certainly have uh, clarified the rules for transition to different size categories for banks and also explained how significant that that transition is for every bank. So I, uh, I thoroughly appreciate that. And I'm sure our audience does as well. So this is Dean Stockford from M&M Consulting. And this is Len Suzio from GeoData Vision saying, thank you for listening to our conversation regarding how the bank size transition rules are implemented and how very important they are for your bank. Please send us topics you would like us to address in future podcasts. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Compliance 911 Show. If you like the podcast, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. While you're at it, please give us a like and review to help others find the show. As always, links are in the show notes, and you can always find us online at compliance911show.com. Follow M&M Consulting and Geodata Vision on LinkedIn for all the latest news and information on compliance hot topics.